Simple Beep, episode 59, Apple Museums. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And we have a bunch of news items, both in follow-up and that will actually lead us into our topic for today. So let's start with the uh, the older ones, but things that have happened since we recorded our last show. The first thing we want to highlight is an Indiegogo campaign for an independent film about the Newton. We did two episodes about the Newton and the Newton community uh, a couple episodes back. This film is called Love Notes to Newton, and it's not just about the hardware, but also features many members of the present-day Newton community, including uh, Grant Hutchinson, a.k.a. at Splorp. So uh, if you enjoyed those episodes we did on the Newton and uh, some of the guests that we talked to from the Newton community, and you want to toss a couple bucks towards this film, we'll put the link to the Indiegogo campaign for Love Notes to Newton in our show notes. It seems like a fairly ambitious product uh, project, but they're, they have a... Uh, I, I never quite understood how Indiegogo works. Kickstarter is so simple. <laughs> <laughs> you either get it or you don't. Right. They have a flexible goal of $17,000, and that seemed like quite a lot, although it's not right here on the campaign page, but I think I saw it linked somewhere else. Maybe you can dig it up and put it in the notes. It, the creator of the film has like a laundry list of Newton enthusiasts that he wants to go and visit and interview. And he had a, he posted a map of where they're located kind of all over the world. And so most of that budget looks like it's going towards travel and accommodations so that you could actually talk to these people in person. So I think that's also part of why it's flexible. It's like, well, he has, you know, maybe I could be scaled back and still have a pretty interesting project. Uh, also looks like they have um, some neat t-shirt rewards. So um, that could be worth it as well. Speaking of Kickstarters. Oh, yeah, we have another crowdfunding campaign here. So last episode, we were talking about Classic Mac Games and one of the ones that we played on the Internet Archive and talked about was Crystal Quest. And it turns out that there was a recent Kickstarter for Crystal Quest that was in March or wrapped up in March of this year. And the Kickstarter actually failed. And I guess the notion was to revive the classic edition of Crystal Quest and make it native on some new platforms. One of the things that I think might have been kind of the downfall of this campaign was uh, an aggressive goal. And also the fact that they point out some of the more recent ports uh, and remakes of Crystal Quest, like at the top of the campaign is a screenshot from the Xbox version that is available and has basically the same mechanics, although totally revamped graphics. And they wanted to go back to the original. Um, I mean, I guess they've been undercut again by the fact that it's available for free on the uh, on the internet archive now. Um, and yeah, I think that Crystal Quest has just kind of been always available and certainly is now with that internet archive in the browser version. So go play Crystal Quest. It turns out that even though the campaign was unsuccessful, they went ahead and pushed through with the port anyway. Uh, so you can download this like updated version of Crystal Quest for macOS and Windows for $199. One other note on Crystal Quest that actually ties into our next piece of follow-up. I was learning some more about Crystal Quest and the that essentially because I was playing it in the in-browser emulation, I was kind of playing it wrong. 
or it may be significantly harder if you play it in the in-browser emulation because I said in our episode and somebody tweeted to me and said, like, that doesn't quite sound right. Um, that when I was playing, it was the, the way that you accelerate the ship, it was like there's an invisible origin point in the center of the screen and where your mouse cursor is relative to that is what accelerates the ship. And uh, what people said is you shouldn't be able to see the mouse cursor while you're playing. But of course, because it's in-browser emulation, your your native cursor appears on top. And also, the way that the mechanic apparently works in Crystal Quest is that that origin point does exist. The cursor is hidden, and as you move the mouse, it, it when at any point where you stop moving the mouse, it teleports the cursor back to the center of the screen. So you can't actually get stuck in a corner. And I was getting the mouse like stuck off to one side and then the ship would get pushed all the way into the corner. And so apparently it's actually harder <laughs> if you play it in the browser that way. Um, and obviously like the in-browser emulator does not have the ability to move your outside of the browser native cursor back to a particular point on the screen. So the the physics is changed there. And if you were playing it in the browser and thought, man, this is way too hard, um, you may have to get it into an environment where that might work. So maybe if you have uh, a local emulator and can put it into full screen mode, for example, that might work a little bit better for you. Or if anyone wants to try the updated port of Crystal Quest for modern macOS made by Game Mechanics, uh, let us know how it turned out. Right. The whole thing of the Kickstarter was that like they they licensed the the engine and the, the way that it works. So uh, I presume that they got it right. Moving on to another bit of follow-up about classic Mac games. Uh, the podcast Retronauts had an episode, it's episode 98 of their show, that also uh, was clearly inspired by the availability of some classic Mac games on the Internet Archive and uh, their episode covered a lot of the same ones as ours, but it's worth a listen because it's a nice self-contained story about gaming on the Mac. Uh, they go through a little bit of the history of the Lisa and the first Mac models, as well as talking about the influence of HyperCard on kind of the Macintosh uh, ecosystem overall, with a tease that the uh, future episode of their show will go into Myst and other HyperCard-based games as they get into more of Mac gaming in the 90s. Uh, so thank you to listener Yannick Magnin for sending us a link to that, and uh, you should go check it out. I had not heard of Retronauts before, and it's a really well-done show. Uh, I have more podcasts to listen to than I possibly could, but some of their back catalog is going to go into my queue. Uh, yeah, if you wanted two more hours of what we talked about last episode with a large number of musical interludes, I guess it's just their editing style. Uh, and I think all of them were pulled from Mist because they, as they said, I guess they try to theme it for every episode, but they said that you know, these early 80s Mac games didn't really have much in the way of soundtracks because like, they had to fit on 800k floppies. But yeah, it's a really great episode and a really cool podcast to check out, especially if you're interested. It seems like the people who do Retronauts are really steeped in the history of video games as as like art and culture and also just as nostalgia of their own childhoods and so it's a slightly different take on it and really well done 
another resource uh, that Yannick also sent us a link to that's uh, more of a Mac perspective is a YouTube channel called Play Different. The reference is obvious there. And it's all clips of Mac games being played, some with commentary, some without. It's a pretty random collection. I mean, it, it is kind of like dipping your hand into the uh, like shareware bargain bin and seeing what you get. Uh, looks like it's been running for a while now. Uh, I think the channel has about 100 videos. Totally random, interesting stuff in there, and looks like they're continuing to post every few days or so. Uh, so another fun little resource if you just can't get quite enough of classic Mac gaming. And there's all kinds of software covered in here, uh, like fun software. It goes from games that we've covered on this show to other games from the era to some fun like freeverse software stuff like Jared. I think I saw Jared in there. Yep. <laughs> and uh, there's a video of the freeverse kind of like throwaway gag app, uh, Virtual Viagra, which just makes your cursor grow. And I hadn't thought about that in like 25 years. Let's go play a uh, rousing game of Sim Stapler. Yeah, exactly. So that's the news that's happened regarding our previous episodes since last time. But a piece of news that we're going to start from for this episode is a piece of news out of Ukraine, which is that uh, there's a company there called MacPaw. You might be familiar with them. They make uh, Gemini and Clean My Mac. And they're the creators of that new subscription app service called SetApp. And we met Julia from MacPaw at Release Notes last year. Wonderful people there. And they're a much bigger company than we realized. We found out that they have, like I think, over 100 employees. And they're really doing some great stuff. They're a pretty young company, too. Uh, Clean My Mac, I think, was their first product that they're uh, CEO and founder basically wrote by himself and then turned into this business. And so they're like a modern, you know, OS 10 era Mac company that's really growing, but they also have a love of classic Mac as well. And so the piece of news that came out publicly uh, in the last week or so is that they've opened a little private museum that is based on a famous Mac collection that came from the TechServe store in uh, in New York City. And we'll get into details of that a little bit later. But uh, it got us thinking about where some of these big collections of Apple memorabilia and machines are around the world. And it turns out that there's quite a few of them, and it seems to be a growing number of them. We might as well start with the one that claims to be, quote, the largest private collection of Apple products in the world. And this is the Apple Museum Prague. So this museum opened in late 2015 and is located in, I think it's called like the, the pop art uh, collection or something like that. Yeah. They came at this from the view of like an art museum, but they do have a huge collection of Apple stuff. And uh, we'll post a link to some photos of their exhibits. I think the one that I remember seeing when they opened and did a big publicity blitz was they have uh, the Yum! Five Flavors IMAX mounted like in glass between two of the exhibit halls, and then they're lit from within. And it says, think different underneath. And it's a really striking effect. Yeah, it's a recreation of one of the 
photos from that ad campaign, but with the real three-dimensional computer hardware instead of just photos. And just appearing to hang in space. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, it's a it's a complete museum. It's uh, it's laid out and organized kind of by hardware type, by era. They go into some of the other kind of Apple-adjacent things usually linked to by Steve Jobs, such as Pixar and Next. And uh, one detail that I really enjoyed is that there is a small cafe on the grounds of the museum, like many museums have. But uh, this cafe is called Stephen's Food after Steve Jobs, and it uh, only offers like vegan, maybe vegetarian options. No, I think it said raw food vegan. Raw so food like, vegan? They're, yeah, they're hardcore. <laughs> yeah, so there's a little bit of like hero worship uh, undertones, but uh, it's it's taken them to really great results. The exhibits are laid out like very nicely, like kind of meticulously. There's a good sense of design pervading the whole thing that is kind of rooted in the System 7 era. Um, it's, it looks like a really cool place to go. Yeah, absolutely. The main photo on their website, like if you load up their homepage is of the exterior of the museum at night and it's in what looks like an older, almost historic building. It's got these archways. It makes me think of some of the more historic buildings that Apple has put Apple retail locations into. It's got the you know six colors, rainbow Apple logos, and then the the sign for the museum is glowing in blue neon. Uh, says Apple Museum in like twelve point Chicago, but blown up to like multiple feet high signs, and then all of the signs in the windows, interestingly, all in English, um, also feature a lot of uh, the Chicago typeface. So we're not going to get into like an extensive description of all of the hardware that's available in each of these museums. Maybe we'll like pick out some of our favorite pieces, but uh, as you may expect, there's a lot of the kind of snow white design language era Macintoshes and an original Macintosh in the lobby, but all the way through some of the modern stuff, certainly the iPod line, uh, some iMacs in there. One piece that I uh, really like, I think it's cool that they preserved is something that I think has come up in podcasts or, or, you know, the Apple circle, but uh, it is a, like a stock transferal. I don't know what these, these are, but uh, it's got a little bit of uh, notoriety to it. The person surrendering Apple stock is Ronald Wayne, and he uh, is giving away a 10% stake in the company for $800. Don't do it, Ron. <laughs> As of this recording... Apple is almost worth $800 billion, 795.3. And so, of course, 10% of that is a, a big chunk of change. Yeah, but things would have gone much, much differently, I think, if he had stayed on at the very beginning instead of it just being the Steves out on their own. Yeah, I, I knew of that uh, I knew of that incident in Apple history because he was with the company for, what, like 20 days or something? And... Uh, then, you know, basically sold back his share and said this is too big of a risk for him. Uh, but knowing where that individual artifact is as well is is pretty cool. Uh, one other thing that I want to mention is just their website. I, I think this is one of the like, best designed websites. It's got a lot of references to the old and new. Uh, on their main page, they have... Like when you first load the page, you see an original Macintosh one-button mouse with the uh, 
you know, dark gray button. And it just says think, which of course, you know, there was the IBM think campaign and then those, uh, sort of mocking think in the rainbow color Apple posters around the Apple campus when the Mac was first being developed. And then that's in on a black background. And then it animates in and it says, so think is in like blown up nine point Geneva. And then it says different underneath in clearly like big, like 48 point Helvetica Noia. And it like seamlessly unveils the bottom half to be like an Apple Pro mouse or something more recent. And then they have a whole series of these, like they have a thousand songs in the old text in your pocket. And it's an Apple Pro CD on top and then like an iPod classic on the bottom. Like all of these references to famous slogans or phrases that surround the company and then showing like the old and the new. So it's a very, very neat design. I think uh, their aesthetic for design shows in both like the digital, the website that everyone, all of us can go view and uh, what it looks like from the photos or if you are in the neighborhood and can go actually visit them in Prague. And if you do want to visit them in Prague, admission is nine euros. Moving on to another place, also called Apple Museum, this one is in Moscow. And it seems to be largely the result of like one uh, private collector who amassed a big collection, and this is Andrei Antonov, and he went into uh, business with the partner Evgeny Butman. And uh, so again, this is a, uh, a private collection of, uh, I think they say hundreds of artifacts, uh, hardware, uh, marketing memorabilia, etc. Um, I think the cool thing about this museum is that uh, not only are people encouraged to come visit, and uh, I think the admission, <laughs> it's done the uh, conversion here is 350 rubles or about six US dollars. I asked Siri, that's what she said. <laughs> I have to believe it. It's not only that the machines and the artifacts are on display, but uh, people are encouraged to boot them up and load software and play games or, or you know, dabble in Mac paint on them. So it's a very interactive museum. Uh, and I like that their logo appears to be the command S, the, com- the command symbol with an S, kind of like saving Apple history. We'll link to a gallery on Flickr of photos inside the museum. And part of it's, you know, just like, come hands-on, be hands-on with the computer's aesthetic is like, it's definitely not as polished as the Apple Museum Prague, which is more like a museum that you go and you observe the exhibits, like you would think, you know, of more like an art museum. Whereas this is more like, almost looks like a classroom in some places and really just has things uh, out and available, except for maybe like some rare prototype stuff that looks, uh, or, or memorabilia that looks like it's preserved behind glass. One thing that I uh, wanted to pick out of that Flickr gallery is they have a Bell and Howell machine, which was basically uh, like kind of a white labeled Apple II plus, but a full credit given to Apple on the, uh, on the machine itself. And uh, we failed to mention this in our colorful Apple products episode and friend of the show, Stephen Hackett reminded us that this was a machine that, uh, kind of fits into that categorization because it is an Apple product and it was a special color. The Bell and Howell machine was black. The Apple II series were like beige. And the uh, Flickr gallery is posted by 
Andrei Antonov himself and his profile picture on Flickr. He's wearing like novelty sunglasses <laughs> that are the rainbow apple logos. That's dedication. Continuing on uh, museums that are uh, not in the United States, the next one is in Warsaw and it is called the Mac Museum with a Z. And this one also has a little bit of uh, recent news as we record this. Yeah, unfortunate news. Unfortunately, uh, their collection is now uh, looking for a new home because it seems like uh, the owner, maybe some other people involved, uh, are going through some health issues and cannot maintain it at this time. So there's a collection of, they say they have over 100 computers, 500 accessories, 150 iPods. I think their homepage said more than 250 I- iPodauf. <laughs> it's like it's like pluralized. It literally means 150 of iPods. Like they, you put the Polish morphology on it. It's nifty. iPod iPod devices. I I presume my Polish is not there. Next museum will get to a language that I can actually speak. <laughs> um, but yeah, it looks like a huge collection, and they posted on Facebook that said that it they're entertaining offers for it. Seems unfortunate and and. I mean, I don't know what the Polish healthcare system is like. I don't think this is the kind of thing where it's like I'm selling my collection to pay for my medical bills. I think it's really like this is a, a you know this is a collection and a business that I maintain, and I'm not able to maintain it now. So looking for a new caretaker, whether that's in the existing location or shipped elsewhere in the world. So uh, we wish them the best, and we hope that the collection finds a new home and no we're not buying it (laughs) yeah it's it's not us uh next one i think is the one on that i would most like to visit and that i didn't really know much about until we started uh doing research for this show it's a museum in savona italy called all about apple and their website which i read all in italian because i was i couldn't you know i i couldn't resist it (laughs) Um, says that all about Apple nasce nel 2002 da un fortunato ritrovamento, a, a fortunate discovery. Yeah, uh, it, they must have happened upon a collection of uh, machines, and so they kind of worked together to open a museum, and uh, they must have put some press out because uh, soon after the museum opened, in kind of the middle of 2005, they got an unexpected phone call from Apple headquarters in Cupertino, California. Uh, They basically wanted to to congratulate them on successfully opening a museum. And eventually they they got to talking and arranged some things and they sent them a uh, a small package to just kind of like, here's some some things. Uh, I think it was more like merchy things like Apple stickers, marketing posters, and some shirts. And... uh, just to kind of congratulate them on opening the museum and to maybe give them a, a couple of things to give away at, at a later grand opening date or something. But it's really cool. They got officially recognized by Apple, and uh, I think they felt really good about that. Yeah, so they've also put together a huge collection. They say that they have more than 10,000 items and over 1,000 computers. Uh, and I think like many of these, they say they were, quote, amassed quietly over five years. And like many of these collections, they just happened organically. And then people decided that there needed to be a place for them to go. And they also uh, 
did a crowdfunding campaign. So the, the museum was open to the public in May of 2005 when Apple sent them their little, little gift of memorabilia. But they were looking for a bigger, more permanent location. And so they had a campaign on what I guess is an Italian crowdfunding website and um, were successful in their campaign and did a like grand reopening in a permanent location in April 2015. And I mean, this looks like a really cool museum and they have they have a slogan on the italian version of the website it's il museo apple dove la mela prende vita it's the apple museum where the apple comes to life and but like they have options for like guided tours they have labs and workshops and these permanent museum or permanent museum exhibits as well uh and just like all of all of these other European museums that we've talked about have been in like big major cities. And this is often Savona in the Northwest of Italy. It's, I, I looked up, it's the hundredth largest city in Italy. And it's got one of the largest Apple collections in the world. It's really a going concern. They've got sponsors. They're sponsored by Team, which is one of the like major cell phone providers in Italy, who of course loves Apple now. I want to say I've I've that only rings a bell because I must have seen them in the upper left corner of some screenshots from Federico Vitici at one point or another. But yeah, this is a this is definitely a museum I'd like to go see as well. And uh Travel costs aside, once you get there, it, the admission is only seven euro. And while you're in Savona, you can go see its other claim to fame, which is the Christopher Columbus House, which is apparently where he wrote some accounts of his travels after returning to Italy. Sold. Probably a, a much bigger claim to fame of <laughs> the 100th largest city in Italy. Moving on, let's now talk about the collection of Apple products that uh, is now at the MacPaw offices in Kiev. Yeah, so I think this is a good way to transition from Europe to North America, even though this collection actually transitioned in the opposite direction. Like we said at the top of this episode, MacPaw recently put some press out um, about this collection with some great photos and a nice little promotional video. So we'll link to their blog post in our show notes. Uh, but yeah, this collection um, is is a part of their office now. It's not necessarily open for public tours, but the greater story is where this collection was before it came to their office. Yes. So there was some concern among people who follow, who are in the Apple Collector community or follow these collections even perhaps more closely than we do on a day-to-day -day basis, because there was news out of New York City last year that a venerable piece of the New York Apple community, TechServe, was closing up shop. So this was a uh, Apple dealer and repair shop that was on West 23rd Street in Manhattan. And they'd been in business for 29 years and, you know, displaced by online sales and the pervasiveness of Apple retail and, you know, giant cubes of glass uh, just a little bit uptown from where they were, uh, they decided that it was time to close their business. But one of the things that they had put together as a piece of their business 
over the years was an incredibly large collection of Apple hardware, especially some particularly rare Apple hardware. Um, Apple hardware that had belonged to individuals uh, like Steve Wozniak and also some prototype materials. And it was just a very large collection. And so as part of the closing of the business, they announced that this was going to go up on auction and they expected it to, uh, to get between 12 and $14,000. And the opening bid was set to be $8,000. But it turns out that it never went to auction because MacPaw had stepped in and made an offer and was able to acquire the entire collection. Uh, and they were worried that it was going to, if there, if there wasn't a successful bid for the collection as a whole, that they might break it up into individual lots and start selling the pieces individually. And that would, you know, that would lose the continuity of the history there because the the collection is not just the sum of all of the components or all of the products or hardware in it. It's the fact that they all went through this one hub of Apple activity that was basically, it was the place for early Mac users in New York. So the collection has all stayed together, but it has a new home halfway across the world in Kiev. Yeah, I really love that aspect of it, that uh, it all re- it represents the, maybe like the East Coast Mac community through these uh, classic years. And I can just imagine, you know, becoming friendly with the people who worked at TechServe and maybe they repaired your like LC2 once or twice. And then by the time that it, you really couldn't be using it anymore, instead of you know, like junking it, uh, I'm sure a lot of these pieces were donated to TechServe by former and current happy customers. Or like trade-ins, where now you expect that if, you know, you expect that if you trade in some old hardware now, that you know, maybe they'll give you 50, 100, 200 bucks for it. And your expectation is that like that's going off to the drive shredder and it's going to be recycled. And that's or, you know, parted out. And that's the value. That's the reason that they're giving you something back and also to keep your business. But it seems like here, a lot of things made their way back to the store and then were hung on to. So yeah, kudos to the team at MacPaw for saving that piece of history. I, I think a lot of our discussions on this show come back to like, how do we not just talk about this history, but preserve the history and so that was a big step that they took and and not something that they in any way had to do, right? Like, unlike some of these other places that are centered around collections, charging admissions, acting as museums, this is, you know, this is just a little thing that they could do to be part of the community, even though they came into the Mac community much later on. I think that that's cool that they feel like they need to have that connection. And I do hope that in the near future, uh, you know, it, it's not like they just purchased the collection to put it on a wall and say that was it. Uh, they added a few pieces to it and they want to continue to grow it. And I do hope that it becomes uh, available for the public, at least at some point in the future. So now let's turn our attention to some Apple museums or Apple exhibits 
here in the United States. And this is another piece of news that happened in just the past few weeks. So we're going to start out in Seattle, in Microsoft country, at the Living Computers Museum. So this is a museum in suburban Seattle, and it really is Microsoft-related. It was founded by Paul Allen of Microsoft. And he founded this museum venture in January of 2006. Obviously, there was a lot of planning to do amassing collection, creating exhibits, finding the permanent space, finding staff, et cetera, et cetera, right? Lots to ramp up. And the museum opened to the public in October of 2012. So it's been open for a few years now. But they've made some recent changes to their exhibits and some recent acquisitions or new pieces that have gone on public display recently. And one of these uh, got great attention because it drew Steve Wozniak to the museum for an event where he was there. And it turns out, this was what caught, what made headlines, it turns out that this was the first time that Steve Wozniak and Paul Allen, two giants of the early personal computer scene had ever met in person. And so it sounds like they had a lovely chat. <laughs> Photo ops were, were done. Uh, and uh, they now have some interesting Apple pieces that, you know, they are celebrating as part of this museum. It's not, even though it's coming from Paul Allen, it's not a Microsoft museum. It's not a PC museum. It's the Living Computers Museum. So some of the Apple-related hardware that also... Uh, made the news as the hardware was uh, put on display for the public are some Apple One machines. And one is a functional Apple One. I think they say the only functional Apple One that can be used by like anyone in the public. And uh, it's the Apple One, when it was originally sold by the Steves, was just the board. So you had to supply your monitor or like a little cathode TV, the keyboard. I think uh, in the video accompanying this uh, hardware, they told me they had to go and buy some more like uh, capacitors <laughs> and stuff. So uh, they've taken all the work and put together a fully functioning Apple One. And it's in a nice, cool, like clear Lucite case. Yeah, they've done a really interesting job because they want it to be accessible to the public. I mean, this is part of the title of the museum, and this is what they really mean by Living Computers Museum, is you come in and you use the computers. Um, much like, which was the other one in Europe that was that way? Was it the Moscow yeah. Museum? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is really designed for that purpose, but an Apple One is fragile. And that's part of the reason that there are so few of them. I, and... The way that they're traditionally displayed, I mean, I remember this was, I think it was last summer, maybe two summers ago, that the Henry Ford Museum in Detroit put their Apple One on display. And Stephen Hackett did an interview with one of the curators there. They did a little video and showed it working, but like they booted it up in their like, you know, behind the scenes room. <laughs> like a clean room. Not quite, but you know, like in, in an exhibit's curation room rather than an open to the public area. And they took some videos of it and they put that in the display. And then they took the board and they put it behind glass. And I thought about, you know, driving down to Detroit and seeing it because it's interesting. But on the one hand, I, I wound up not going because I saw a picture of it in the display 
at the museum. And it's like, well, I could drive 45 minutes to Detroit to see a circuit board sitting under glass. That doesn't really do anything for me, even even though I love this stuff. Just like being on the opposite side of a pane of glass from it is not interesting. But being able to use one is fascinating. And to do that, they had to do some engineering to, and they built this, like, like you said, it's like a lucite case. So you can see, you know, it is like the exhibit case where you can just see the circuit board under there, but then they have the keys protruding out of it. So that's the only piece that you can touch is the original, uh, the original keyboard that went with it. And then it's fully functional and on display at the same time. Really like really clever piece of, design and affords people a you know really rare opportunity. One of the other things about this is that um they're talking about their Apple Ones plural. Like I think that this is perhaps the only place on the planet that has multiple Apple Ones right now. Yeah. I like the video said maybe about 200 of those boards were made and so they have, you know, like 1% if that's true, you know, at least of all the Apple ones that were ever made. Um, and one of the other ones is uh, what I think caught a lot of people's attention is it turns out to be a custom, like encased Apple one uh, customized to Steve Jobs's taste. Right. This is the thing that had never been seen before until they put it on display, except by a select few people. And so it's it's cool in two ways. One, like the unit itself it's clear that it has Steve's, uh, you know, personal taste applied to it. It's got very clean lines. Um, it's got it's made out of sheet metal. It's not made out of plastic. And as Ed noted here in our show notes, uh, it looks a lot like what the Apple II plastic cases would later look like. So maybe it even kind of set the tone for future hardware. Right. And one of the museum curators in the video says those molded plastic cases were actually one of the expensive components of the Apple II, and of course, a huge leap from a bare circuit board in the Apple I to the all-in-one package of the Apple II. But the design vision was clearly there, and he basically got people to you know, just weld it together out of sheet metal for him. But the the design came out looking like one of those sort of flat Apple II boxes with the integrated tilted-forward keyboard. Um, if If the explanation for it weren't there. Like if, if there were, you know, no sign in the museum or you didn't watch the video and you were just going through the gallery, you'd go, Oh yeah, Apple two. Right. And then it turns out to be not an Apple two. And in fact, like a very significant piece of Apple history. So the story of how it wended its way into the living computers museum is also pretty interesting. Yeah. So as is now famous in Apple lore, Steve was uh, forced out of the company by the board shortly after the Macintosh's introduction. That was one thing in the video that bothered me. There, the curator, he's like, yeah, uh, Steve, Steve just left. I was like, no, he didn't just he, he didn't just like decide that this was not working. Like th- there was some pressure there. And uh, also, as the video made it out to seem, it was like, you know, he didn't even have time to pack up. He just got out of there. <laughs> and so one of the things he left behind was this customized Apple One. And uh, and then as the story also goes in this video, 
his office was kind of opened up to remaining employees as like free reign. If there's something in there you want, go ahead and take it. And an early Apple employee, Don Huttmacher, saw it and took it. And so uh, it, you know, he can just kind of held on to it for a while. This, what ends up being a one of a kind, special to Steve Jobs piece of hardware. But uh, the cool case isn't everything that's special about this. Uh, to borrow from Steve Jobs is one of his favorite quotes. Design isn't just how it looks, it's how it works. As Ed was saying before, the Apple One was a very fragile machine. Um, it had no uh, permanent memory. So you would have to like retype in your your code every time you turned it on. It's not welcome to Macintosh smiley face. It's welcome to Apple One. Here's a basic prompt. <laughs> yeah. And so apparently uh, Steve had also asked an early employee, Dan Kotke, to kind of rig it up so this would be a really flashy demo unit where uh, when you're taking this unit out to pitch to people, you don't have to spend part of the demo retyping in all the code for the tasks you want to run. Or reading it from cassette tape, which was the other way to load something from a permanent storage medium. So this Apple One also has some ROM, and uh, it's cool on the outside and cool on the inside. The thing that finally authenticated this as Steve's machine, not only just the appearance and the stories of its provenance, but then they also opened it up and they noticed that it was signed BF. And they determined that that's the initials of Bill Fernandez, who was Apple employee number one. And so that also solidly puts it early enough in Apple's history to indicate exactly when it was created and where it came from and the path it took to this museum in Seattle. So if you're in Seattle or near the area and want to check it out, go to the Living Computers Museum. Admission is $12. Let's uh, skip to the other side of the United States now and go to Roswell, Georgia, to the Computer Museum of America. And you may be familiar with this collection, or at least with its collector, who we've talked about, uh, maybe if you've listened all the way back to some of our earliest episodes, because this institution is run by Lonnie Mims, who is a well-known collector. And we heard some stories about his collections from Jonathan Zufi, uh, because Lonnie Mims helped out with sourcing some of the rare Apple hardware that was photographed for Iconic. Mims has been a private collector of Apple hardware and also has set up this collection at the what is called the Computer Museum of America. And it's interesting also because it brings in another famous collection that made news that you might have heard about in the past couple of years. Um, I, I was looking for where did this collection go, which, because we were putting together this list of museums, I went, what about that kid from, like, Maine or whatever? There was this story uh, about uh, a year and a half ago that there was this teenager in Maine who had assembled a completely insane collection of extremely rare Apple stuff, apparently from money that he got mowing lawns. He must have mowed some very large lawns very <laughs> frequently. His name is Alex Jason, and he put together this collection that he affectionately called the Apple Orchard until it 
absolutely no longer fit in his parents' basement and needed a new home. He was working on a deal with a local museum, the main technology museum, but that deal fell through because they wanted to put in some other kind of exhibit instead that they thought would attract more patrons. And after that, he got in touch with Lonnie Mims and the Computer Museum of America purchased the Apple Orchard collection to bring together with what they have. So those things are, as we'll put an article in the show notes, uh, it says rather unceremoniously that they were packed into a 26-foot U-Haul <laughs> and uh, they were driven down the east coast of the United States down to Roswell, Georgia. One of the many pieces in this collection is the oft-mentioned-on-this-show LPGA Power Book. Ridiculous. Like, how how did he get that? <laughs> How, how did he find the person? How did he get the how, how many how many lawns? <laughs> uh, there's also a like a kind of late Mac classic or all in one LC uh, that is instead of being made out of opaque snow white uh, plastic, it's kind of like neon transparent green plastic. There's a whole bunch of cool one offs or prototypes in this collection specifically. Yeah, it looks like it looks like a Game Boy Advance or something. The Computer Museum of America has a couple exhibits. Um, the one that I think features these uh, artifacts, as well as a more traditional kind of art museum-y uh, laid out exhibit with the kind of the, the story and the arc of Apple, is called An Exploration of Apple, and it appears to only be open to uh, people who specifically rent out the museum. It's not uh, completely open to the public. Although some of the language on their website suggests that the museum may uh, open more broadly sometime this calendar year. So keep an eye on it if you're interested in seeing some of these fun uh, prototype machines. Keep listening to follow up. It'll get in there eventually. <laughs> For our final two uh, locations, we're going to go back to the West Coast and specifically to the Bay Area, the peninsula, closer to Apple's home of Cupertino. And the first thing we want to highlight is not so much a museum full of things to interact with and look at, but uh, something designated as a historical landmark, and it is the Apple Garage. The garage is is a fun myth for Silicon Valley, I think. Um, the Hewlett-Packard Garage is a landmark in Palo Alto. The Google Garage was a, a famous one. And, of course, there was a garage where the Steves got together in Los Altos, California, and the myth goes that that's where they actually like, physically created the first Apple computer. That's what the movies would like you to believe. <laughs> so, of course, it's it's a very nice story to tell. It ties in with a lot of other companies in the Valley. But yeah, it's not exactly true that Apple was just conceived of in a garage. Uh, we'll put a link here that I think uh, Steve Wozniak talked to Bloomberg and uh, said like, well... Sure, we worked out of that garage, but it was more like we brought parts there to assemble in the garage. It wasn't like the the spiritual home and birthplace of Apple. It was more just like the, the workplace. <laughs> Nevertheless, it is designated as a landmark. You can drive to Los Altos and see this famous garage for yourself. Presumably someone like lives there now, right? I don't know how that works. Yeah, because the Hewlett-Packard one, I think, is the one in Palo Alto, and I would walk by it when I lived there. And it seemed 
like the house was vacant, but I, I'm not sure. I don't know how those work. See, this is like this is like last year when I was in San Francisco and we were right in the neighborhood. So we walked a few blocks and went and saw the Painted Ladies, which, mm-hmm. you know, row of extremely famous houses in San Francisco. And there's just this like mob of people on a hill across from these houses taking pictures of them. And people live there like um, there was there was like a campaign sign for Hillary in the window and somebody pulled out of the garage and it's like, there's just this like mob of people just taking photos of their house. Like, I don't, I don't know how they could possibly stand it. What we're saying is don't be creepy. And finally, there's the computer history museum in San Jose, which is not dedicated to Apple. It's more like the living computers museum. That's just about the history of computing as a whole. Um, they have some cool exhibits that are mostly organized by theme. So there's like one about video games or one about the microprocessor. Uh, they have in their collection, some cool Apple, early Apple business documents. And, uh, what's beneficial to everybody, especially listening to this show is you can actually download PDF copies of these documents. You don't even have to go to the museum. The two that they have highlighted are a preliminary confidential offering, so not quite the Apple initial public offering, but you can, if that kind of stuff is interesting to you, you can read through the entire like initial, this is Apple as a company. And it was given to the museum by one of the initial investors, Mike Markula, who it notes invested 250000 for a third of the company up front. That's a $750,000 valuation. <laughs> yeah. And just think about it's ballooned to, you know, over $750 billion. It's crazy. The second document here is far more interesting. It's the preliminary business plan for the Macintosh, not Apple computer, but specifically the Macintosh. And like, how is it going to be different than things Apple has made? How is it different from the rest of the market? And, uh, True to like the max sense of visual design, and one of the things that set it apart, the each section of the business plan is kind of outlined by a Mac system menu. So it's uh, like the menu bar at the top is kind of a table of contents, and there's a menu open, and each menu item is a section of the business plan. And it's like the whole thing was done in Mac Paint, or perhaps a precursor to Mac Paint. Right. It's got like all the texture fills and things are drawn with like rectangles. And then <laughs> this is particularly ironic in the bottom right of the front page is there's a thing that's, I guess, supposed to be a photocopier, but but like it's not a good drawing. So it says Xerox. And then it's got like the universal symbol, you know, like circle with a line through it for do not. And then it says do not copy. <laughs> <laughs> Just the irony of it, though of it saying Xerox and it being the plan for the Mac. So influenced by the interfaces developed at Xerox Park. Hilarious. Yeah. But then, yeah, the little um, like schematic art of like what an Apple II looks like, what an Apple III looks like, what a Mac looks like, what a Lisa looks like, and that these were going to be like parallel product lines. Cool little document. And I love like the pattern fills that uh, like the keyboards instead of like drawing in keys, it's a rectangle. And then they did like a pattern fill that's like close enough. <laughs> yeah. It's a really cool document. And it is thanks to early employee Dan Kotke, who we mentioned before, helped rig that special 
Apple One. Also, they have this uh, like screen size comparison of different Apple products. Did you know that the Lisa had a two by one widescreen, or at least was planned to? I didn't. Crazy. So yeah, lots of cool information you can dig up in uh, this document, and probably the preliminary confidential offering. But I will admit, I did not care to skim through that. Just before we wrap up, I'm making a late addendum to our list of Apple museums here because I thought, hang on, wait a minute. Have I been to any computer museums or Apple museums? Wait a minute. There's one computer museum that you and I, Brian, actually were at together at the same time when we were in elementary school and we went to Boston with the computer club. Oh, that's right. (laughs) And we went to the computer museum. I went, wait, so where's where's their awesome collection of old Mac stuff? Well, I found them on Wikipedia. The Computer Museum was, emphasis was, a Boston, Massachusetts museum that opened in 1979 and operated in three different locations until 1999. And we were there in like 95 or 96. Yeah. Their big attraction was the walkthrough computer, which was like the waiting area to Disney ride. I remember that. And the world's largest trackball. There are pictures of all that on the Wikipedia article. I'll, I'll put it in notes. I remember the, the walkthrough computer. That was also like the 90s, that aesthetic of like the green circuit board and the like hard right angles of copper wiring running through it. Like that was everywhere. Even one of the like System 7 or OS 8 uh, desktop background or desktop patterns, excuse me, was kind of that circuit board aesthetic. And I remember thinking it was so cool that to imagine that like I was among it when we went to that museum. Well, and like we talked about those prototypes, I'm like, oh, it looks like a Game Boy Advance or something. Um, that was around the time that translucent and transparent plastics became, I guess, a- able to be produced in quantity at a reasonable price and everyone just went hog wild for it in their industrial design. That was the thing like see-through electronics were the cool thing. And then uh, that was mostly for like small electronics. And then that kind of dipped and then the iMac came and they're like, we can do translucent even though you don't have to see a bunch of printed circuit boards inside. So I think that's a pretty comprehensive roundup of some big Apple collections around the world And there may be others that we have missed, uh, whether there are private collections or museums. So if there is anything that we should mention in a future episode or that we might even be close enough to check out, let us know. You don't need to tell us that uh, friends of the show that we mention often, like Stephen Hackett or Stephen Frank, have uh, notorious personal collections. We're aware of that. (laughs) As always, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We are at simple underscore beep. Or you can go to our website where you can find notes with lots of links and pictures uh, of these collections. You can find notes for all of our shows at simplebeep.com slash episodes. And if you have a longer piece uh, of mail or message that you want to send to us, you can do it easily there from the website. We've gotten some mail in in the past couple weeks and we try to respond. Uh, So feel free to contact us whichever way works best. Individually, we're also on Twitter. I'm at Bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at eCormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.